0: When you preach a message on humility, the Lord has all kinds of ways to uh, tweak you uh, on your way to preaching. And um, so this morning I I printed off all the the handouts and um, they're still on the printer back at the house, my house. So um, thank you, Amanda. Thank you for running those off. I'm going to start today with a little story, a true story, about a little guy named Kevin. Um, This is a true story. This actually happened. They might make a movie about it someday. And it's the story of the famous sword drill. Now, if, if you're like me and you were blessed to grow up in a... Uh, a Christian home that went to church on a regular basis you know what a sword drill is right a sword drill is when uh, everybody has their Bibles and the teacher calls out a reference and maybe you have your Bible by your sword your Bible by your side that's your sword and the teacher reads the reference and then she says charge and you all frantically start going through the scriptures trying to find that reference and then you stand up if you have it and you read it well this is this is what happened to me when I was about John John's age John John I was about your age and um, this Bible sword drill thing was big we did it every week and it was bragging rights so you know if you won the sword drill that week you kind of wore the crown all week if you know what I mean but this was for all the marbles because this was the championship and somehow it ended up, John, John, that it was me versus three girls. And so now I had not only the pressure of winning, which I desperately wanted to do, I also had the pressure of boys beating the girls because that's so important. <laughs> and so we went through the preliminaries, and it was tied going into the very last reference. This is, this is it. We all know this is it. We're all so ready. So the teacher says, attention, draw swords. John 16, 14, charge. Well, what do you know? I turned right to it. And I announced this to the girls, and you could hear an audible groan from the girls. They went, oh. So I stood up, and I promptly read John 15, 14. And I waited for the announcement, the inevitable announcement that would say, Kevin, you won, you have defended masculinity, you have won the sword drill. Kevin, this is it. But that's not what I heard. What I heard was the teacher said, I don't think that's the right verse. I think you're reading John 15, 14. Somehow I had turned right to the wrong page. I was just one page off, just one page off, so close. One page. Oh, the horror. And one of the girls figured it out. She had kept looking while I was celebrating, and then she stood up and snatched victory from me. <laughs> now, I told you this was a true story, and it is. And everything I've told you up to this point is the best my memory can recall. I don't remember what the teacher told me after this, but I certainly hope that she quoted a verse to me that goes something like this. Wherefore, let him that think if he stands take heed lest he falls. So don't really know how to approach a message on humility. Because if I do a really good job preaching this message I might become proud about it. You've heard it said that you should never pray for humility or patience. Because when we pray for patience or humility we're often hoping that the Lord will just kind of Give it to us immediately like that, like a snap. I was talking to a good friend yesterday who just got a cancer diagnosis, and I spent some time with him yesterday afternoon and, and spent some time in prayer with him, and he's already had a blood transfusion. He was very anemic, and he's he's already had a blood transfusion, and he said he just he felt so different after he had the transfusion. And when we pray for patience or humility, that's really kind of what we're hoping the Lord will do. It'll be like a blood transfusion. He'll just automatically give it to us. But that's pretty much not... The Lord could do that, but He often chooses to give us patience and humility by sending us people or circumstances that will help us develop patience and humility. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says consider it all joy my brothers when you fall into diverse trials knowing this that the tr- testing of your faith produces endurance patience and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete lacking nothing we all need more humility And if we need humility, the Lord will often send us things that will humble us. So should we pray for patience and humility? Yes. But be aware that the Lord might answer your prayers. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for patience and humility. We we pray that humbly, knowing full well what your answer might be. So we also pray for grace to be able to endure and that our endurance will lead us into a more mature walk with you. These things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. The Bible has a lot to say about humility. Uh, You've got four verses there on your handout uh, about humility and three of those four verses mentioned something in addition to humility so I want you looking for it look very closely can you see what's the companion piece in three of those four and I'm going to read all four of these verses from Proverbs today is our last uh, official message on Proverbs and so will you out of respect for the word of the Lord will you stand with me as I read these four passages these four short quick verses from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 4, hear the word of the Lord. Humility, the fear of the Lord results in wealth, honor, and life. Proverbs 29:23, a person's pride will humble him. But a humble spirit will gain honor. Proverbs 11:2, when arrogance comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. And finally, Proverbs 16 19. Better to be lowly of spirit with the humble than to divide the plunder with the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Be you may be seated. The Bible has a lot to say about humility. The Bible also has a lot to say about pride. And I hope you noticed that in those three, three of those four verses, there was a companion piece. each one of them and that's the word pride or arrogance is mentioned as well one of the scariest verses to me in the entire Bible goes like this but God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble you want God on the other side you want God on the other team you want God as your opponent pretty easy formula all you have to do is be proud But if you need grace, you need to be seeking humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to go back now to those four verses and take them one by one and just point out a few things to make sure that we are tracking on this humility thing. Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, Humility, the fear of the Lord, results in wealth, honor, and life. Did you catch that? Solomon is basically saying that humility is equal to the fear of the Lord. You could actually substitute those two and you would still be saying the same thing. Because true humility is understanding who God is and who we are. And we are not Him and He is not us. And because we are not Him, we should fear Him. Should we be afraid of Him? Yes. Yes. Yes, Jesus specifically said, don't fear the person who can take away your physical life. Fear the one who can take away your spiritual life, your soul. And that's God. Should we fear God? You better believe we should fear God. And that's the beginning of wealth, honor, and life. second verse, "...the fear of the Lord is what wisdom teaches and humility comes before honor." Proverbs 29, 23 says, A person's pride will humble him, but a humble spirit will gain honor. So many of the Proverbs have kind of a, well, I say it this way, and then you can say the converse is true. But notice, this verse did not say, I'll be very clear, this verse did not say, your pride will humble you, and then your humility will make you proud. It did not say that at all. Okay, because that doesn't follow. Because true humility does not end up in pride. True humility ends up at the foot of the cross, recognizing that someone has done something for you that you can't do for yourself. So that verse did not say, Your pride will humble you, and then your humility will make you pride, proud. It did say, Your pride will humble you, and then your humility will honor you. Big difference third verse. When arrogance comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. There it is again. Step one is humility, then wisdom. It's not reversed. So often when people gain knowledge, the inevitable outcome of that is I'm smart, I've gained knowledge, therefore i become proud. But true humility, true wisdom, is the exact opposite. The more you know, the more you think you know, the more you realize you don't know. I think Weston referenced this in the Sunday school class this morning. And I think Brad alluded to it as well. There, are, there is so much that we don't know. And nothing amuses me than watching a news report where a scientist has made a recent breakthrough and now all the secrets of the universe have been unlocked. And that scientist is bravely telling us that, sorry folks, everybody else before me has wrong, was wrong and now I'm right and it's okay to eat butter. I thought that was funny, but... <laughs> or whatever. Fill in the blank. All the arrogance of, of scientists. Remember, this is the same group of, of people down through the ages who was absolutely convinced the world was flat and um, that everything just happened by accident. So one of my favorite psalms is this. Psalm 131. One, written by a pretty smart guy who had a pretty smart son. The son of Solomon, the guy who wrote this was David. And he says this, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Oh, I take such peace from that verse. That whole psalm, really, the whole psalm is just beautiful. It's only two or three verses. If you want to memorize the psalm, if you want to start off the year, uh, great. I strongly recommend Psalm 131. And David is really saying, he's not saying, I am, he is not saying this. He's not saying, I'm not intellectually curious. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, I recognize the reality that God is God. And I'm a man. And I'm not going to figure him out. And I'm not going to figure out everything that he has laid out here for us. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or beyond my pay grade. That's basically what David's saying. There are things beyond your pay grade. And then the fourth verse. Better to be lowly of spirit with the humble than to divide plunder with the proud. Now, that's Proverbs 16, 19, but you probably know the verse that comes right before it because it, it may be the most famous verse in the Bible that talks about pride. And it goes like this, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Most people misquote that. Um, same, same idea. It still rings true. You've heard it said, pride comes before a fall. Actually, it's worse than that, because you probably could survive a fall. Many of us have. Right, Amanda? Right, JJ? I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? I mean, I I could keep going here, right? We've actually got video of some of those falls. uh. And we need a link to that on the BBC Connection. You know, readership would shoot up. People would subscribe. You know, pride comes, we quote it and we say pride comes before a fall. But the reality is pride comes before destruction. It's much worse than, than a fall. But I don't want you to miss the message because the message is in the next verse. There's another message. It's a good message. And it goes, and it's, As so often happens, the scriptures pair humility versus pride. Well, in Proverbs 16, verse 19, Solomon says, Better to be lowly of spirit with the humble than to divide the plunder with the proud. What he's saying is, watch who you hang out with. Better to hang out with the lowly crowd than the victorious pride people who are dividing up the plunder of the proud. So let's talk about what humility is not, because sometimes we get a false idea, a false concept of what humility is. First of all, I need to say this. Humility, true humility, is not hiding. If you have a talent, if you have a gift... If you have an ability, if the Lord has given you a certain talent, gift, ability, if He's given you that, it is not humility to hide that. As a matter of fact, that's the opposite of humility. So humility isn't hiding. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. What is humility? What is... What is humility not? C.S. Lewis says this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you, of course, that he is a nobody. I call that false humility. C.S. Lewis says this. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in whatever it was you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily because he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is not hiding who God made you to be and the abilities that he's given you so that you can accomplish the task that he's assigned to you. So humility isn't hiding. Humility also is not self-hatred. One of my favorite songs. (laughs) Andrew Peterson. Be kind to yourself. And you know it was Jesus who said love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't He didn't tell you to love yourself there, but he assumes that you're going to do that. And then he says that's not a bad thing because then he equates the love that you should have for yourself and says you should transfer that love and have the same type of love to your neighbor. Self-hatred is not the gospel. Realizing that you're a sinner is part of the gospel. But self-hatred will drive you away from the gospel. I've heard people say, I'm not worthy. No, you're not worthy. You're right. You're not worthy of what Christ did for you, but he did it anyway. He did it because he loved you. He did it because you have value. He did it because you were made in the image of God. He did it because he wants you to know what true relationship is with him. So humility isn't hiding who you really are and what you can do. And humility is not self-hatred. We, we get the wrong concept of what humility is. Gavin Ortland said this. He said, Humility is not hiding what you can do or hating who you are. It is the joy of thinking about yourself less and about Jesus more. One of my favorite writers, Flannery O'Connor, said this, To know oneself above all, is to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against truth, not the other way around. The first product of self-knowledge is humility. Gavin Ortland goes on to say a little bit later, he says, okay, we've, if, if that's what humility isn't, if it's not, it's not hiding and it's not self-hatred, what is it? And then he says this, he says, I love how Tim Keller, following Lewis, speaks of humility as self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Both hiding your talents and hating yourself are forms of self-preoccupation. Whereas humility leads us into freedom from thoughts of self altogether. So, if you really want to know what humility is and who humility is, may I direct your attention to Jesus Christ. Jesus of birth, well born. We're coming out of Christmas. What could be more humble than the Messiah coming to birth, coming to the earth in a human birth? Not in a palace. Not in an inn. Fortunately, there was a stable nearby. Humility is personified in the way Jesus came to earth. It is the very definition of condescension. You know what condescension means? I'm going to define it for you. Condescension. To stoop to do something. And when Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, he stooped, he gave up all the riches of heaven, he gave them all up so that he could identify with us. Condescension is to stoop, to do something, to put aside one's dignity or superiority voluntarily, which is what Jesus exactly did, and then assume equality with one regarded as inferior. In a few minutes, the musicians will play Let All Mortal Flesh, one of my favorite songs. It was a request, and I thank you for Weston hearing my request, and and he will lead the worship team, and they will play Let All Mortal Flesh. Keep silence. Nathan and I were talking about this song just this morning, and he he was pointing out to me that it's in the minor key. And then he went into the, the theory of how minor key songs they're not like major songs because major songs they're more stable, they're more resolved I think the musical term may be resolved but a song in the minor key is not stable it's it's unresolved because there's longing it's like, well it's like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel you hear the longing in that minor key song that we sing at Christmas? same for Let All Mortal Flesh Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand Christ our God to earth descendeth our full homage to demand. What Jesus did in coming to the earth was condescension. He stooped Jesus a birth well born. Jesus a life well lived the sinless servant. We'll just look at one little week in his life. On Palm Sunday, he came into Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5 says, Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you on a white horse with a sword in his hand. Oh, wait a minute. No. That's not the way he chose to come. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you. Gentle, and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal, of a, the foal of a donkey. That's how Jesus made his entrance. Reminds me of how he made his entrance to earth in the first place. In the town of David, in Bethlehem. He didn't come to Jerusalem, the city of the king. It's not where he chose to enter the earth. But now it's time to recognize him for who he is. And now he's coming into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday... And the crowds are crying, Hosanna! And they're throwing palm branches in in his way so that he can, the king can come in. But he's not coming in on a white horse with a sword in his hand. He's coming in gentle. That was on Sunday and on Thursday. He's talking to his disciples in John chapter 13 verses 1 and following. And I better make sure I get the right passage here before I read it to you. That was funny too. (laughs) Okay. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. That he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. You do remember that this happened on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper? You do remember that this washing of their feet happened on the night that Judas betrayed him? You do remember that, right? And so as Jesus came humbly to earth in Bethlehem, now he's in Jerusalem, the city of the king, city of the great king, and how does he demonstrate his superiority? He washes his disciples' feet, and Judas was there. He washed Judas' feet too. Jesus, a birth well-born, a life well-lived. Jesus, a death well-died. Our sinless servant is also our substitute. He took our place on the cross. He is our Savior. He was born as a man. He lived a sinless life. And then he died a horrible death. Back to Philippians chapter 2. Everyone should adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, it wasn't enough that he was born so humbly in Bethlehem. And it wasn't enough that he lived a sinlessly perfect life. No, he's going to die. He's going to submit himself to that great enemy. And he's going to let that enemy take his life. He's going to die. And it's not enough that he's just going to die. He's going to die the most gruesome form of death imaginable. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Humility is Jesus Christ. I told you a a true story about a little boy named Kevin. Now, let me tell you a true story about a little girl named Kathy. Carly, probably about your age. Now, she lived maybe... She grew up maybe 30, 40 years ago. So things were a little bit different. than They actually had bookmobiles back then. Anybody know what a bookmobile is? Okay. All the old people know what a bookmobile is. Um, And the young people are going, what's a bookmobile? Kids, a bookmobile came from the library. And the kids are going, what's a library? (laughs) So it used to be before books were a dime a dozen and the internet was invented that uh, we actually read these things called books and we didn't have all the money in the world so the thought of buying a book was when i was growing up we didn't buy books i mean it was it was kind of rare so a bookmobile would actually come around and you'd get on the bus and you'd go in there and you'd pick out a book and then the bookmobile will come back in a week and you turn that book in and maybe get another one. Well, this little girl named Kathy went on a bookmobile and found this interesting book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, Carly, she's about your age. Okay? So she found that. And she read it and she loved it and she said, I want to read everything I can that C.S. Lewis has, has written. And so the next time the bookmobile came around, she looked, there were no other books. She'd go to the library, no other books. This was back before C.S. Lewis became popular on this side of the ocean. And so this little girl named Kathy said, I'm going to write him and I'm going to encourage him because he's obviously not doing very well. And I really love his books. I want to encourage him so that he'll write more books. Kathy had the notion, this is a quote, that she was the only person in the United States who even knew that C.S. Lewis existed. Every card catalog... You kids know what a card catalog is? No, they don't know that. We old people, we've been through it, let me tell you. Every card catalog I checked, every bookstore I checked didn't have him. So she wrote thinking that she would console C.S. Lewis and tell him that he, at least he had a few admirers. She didn't know that he was kind of a big deal. And you know what? C.S. Lewis wrote her back. He didn't like to write letters. And he had rheumatoid arthritis and it was hard for him to write. He personally wrote handwritten letters back to Kathy. She says this, she says, He was so gracious. In one of her letters, she told him this sad, sad story about how she wrote a mystery story. And you know how mystery stories are. You weave all the facts and you tell all the characters what they did and when they did this and when they did that. And the story goes on and on. And then in the very last paragraph, you reveal all and everything makes sense and you understand what happened. Well, Kathy wrote a story, a mystery story, submitted it to a newspaper, and the newspaper liked it and they decided to print it. But the newspaper editor ran out of room and he decided to cut off the last paragraph. So all of Kathy's friends are making fun of her saying, yeah, that was a great story. Woo! Sure glad I read that. Whatever happened? So Kathy writes C.S. Lewis and tells him about this. And uh, this is what he wrote back. Kathy, I had the same experience. There's nothing to be done. Editors do that to us writers. And Kathy thought, us writers? He just put me in the same category as him. He thinks I'm a writer too. And that was the last letter that she got from C.S. Lewis because just 11 days after that he died. And eventually Kathy found out that C.S. Lewis had written several other books and she read them and even through her doubting, unbelieving days through, through uh, college, eventually the writings of C.S. Lewis led her to a faith in Jesus Christ and she became a Christian, a devout Christian, a strong Christian. And by the way, uh, Kathy's last name is Keller, Kathy Keller. She married Tim Keller. And Tim and Kathy Keller have often thought about the magnanimity of C.S. Lewis to take the time to write back to a 12-year-old girl and the condescension that it must have taken for him to do that. And they just marvel at how God stitched that all together. And then Tim Keller says this. He says, Yeah, That was condescension. But that's nothing compared to what God through Jesus Christ has condescended to do for us. That's true humility. You want to be more humble? if the Lord says you need more humility, and I think the Lord's telling all of us that we need more humility. And if the Lord says we need more humility, then we need more humility. You want to be humble? Be, be like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as, as we often pray before we have a meal for what we are about to receive, make us truly grateful. Lord, I want to pray for whatever's about to happen to us, whatever is in your plan for us, No matter how difficult, how hard, how strenuous, how painful, whatever it is, Lord, make us truly humble. Because we revel in the fact that you resist the proud and you give grace to the humble. You also promise that if we will draw near to you, you will draw near to us. What a great promise. We we, we want to take you up on that, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you will draw near to us as we draw near to you in humility. And these things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.